here today with what might be the third rabbi I've ever had on my show. I, but maybe my favorite, don't tell anyone. Rabbi Mendel Mintz, welcome to Look Ma No Hands. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Laura. I've learned so much from you since meeting you a little over two years ago. And there's really nothing I love doing more on this show than sharing wisdom from people I've learned from with as many people as I possibly can. What I love the most about you is that you repeatedly offer a take on the Jewish perspective and on life in general that I think would be beneficial to everyone, regardless of their religion. And it always surprises me and makes me happy at the same time. I'm going to dive right in here. I think guilt. And we talk about guilt a lot on this show because we talk about motherhood and motherhood and guilt often come together. I think guilt and religion have this sort of unfortunate association with each other. And multiple times I found myself talking to you and discussing some of my guilt and you'll cut me off and you'll say, okay, there's actually no, there's no guilt in Judaism. So I'm going to dive right in. How is that even possible? Like how, first of all, how is there no guilt in Judaism and how is there no real purpose? So great question. Uh, no guilt in Judaism because guilt is unhealthy. And if it's unhealthy, it shouldn't be spiritual. It shouldn't be godly. It shouldn't be good. And it's not part of religion. So what guilt really is, it's a mechanism that avoids reality and avoids from keeping you in the moment. What, you, what guilt does is, is you focus on the past. I can't believe what I did. I can't believe the type of person I am. I can't believe I allowed myself to succumb to this, to do this, or to do that. So guilt is just unhealthy because what really we should be, if we did something wrong, if we made a mistake, if something unfortunate happened, is write it, fix it, be in the moment, and don't forget the past. Because the past, wailing in the past and thinking about the past doesn't allow you to be in the moment and do what's necessary to do right now and be where you should be right now. So guilt, it's okay if it lasts for a minute or two, maybe three. But after that, forget the guilt, move on, uh, reconcile, apologize, fix it, clean it up, do what's necessary. But being guilty and feeling guilty for hours and weeks and months and years and Aspen decades, it's just unhealthy. So I'm actually, I'm reading this memoir right now. It's called We Are the Luckiest. It's by Laura McGowan. And she writes about her journey getting sober after being a very severe alcoholic and, and mother to a five-year-old daughter. She's obviously, I mean, she's driven this daughter around drunk. She's done horrific things with her child in her car. And her guilt um, overwhelms her to such a degree that she keeps trying to get sober and she can't because she's so overwhelmed by how awful she believes what she's done is. So she ends up going to these meetings and she writes about this in her memoir. And she meets somebody who tells her when she's just swimming and how horrific of a person she feels she is, you know, it's okay to just push off from here. It's okay to let go of how the, the way that you're feeling and let yourself start today building this new life. And this person saying this to her, this person saying it's okay to push off from here actually becomes the title of her next book, which is Push Off From Here, which was just released. And um, it gives her the strength to start over and to do things with all the things that have made her feel guilty. So you're basically saying this guilt can be a sign for us that something's not working for us. But beyond that, hanging on to it is actually only going to hold us back. I think that's a classic example of what we just discussed, where, you know, you feel so guilty, you can overcome the guilt that the, the reason you're feeling guilty in the first place. So guilt does have a purpose and it does serve a positive, but the idea is it should be a springboard to push you away from that, to fix and be in a place where you're present and aware and 
involved and can do something positive, but wailing in guilt and getting up feeling guilty, going to sleep feeling guilty, walking around feeling guilty is actually coming from a negative place. It's unhealthy. It's not good. And the guilt that lasts for more than a few minutes is generally doesn't have a positive outcome. Let's take this one step further. I like to call millennials, which I am one, fortunately or unfortunately, the sandwich generation, because in a lot of ways, we were the first generation of parents that sort of reparenting ourselves while giving something we weren't given to our own children. And I really do believe that most of our parents were doing the best they could with the information they had at the time to be really good parents to us. But still, it can be really painful to be a parent when you're giving your child something that you didn't have. And it's sort of like this constant reminder of what you needed as a child that you didn't get. I think it can bring up a lot of pain and oftentimes resentment towards our own parents. And for some of us, there's a real road to healing, to forgiveness, to seeing that our parents were human beings who were just doing what they could with what they had at the time. But in other cases, there was real abuse there. Um, and we're, we're commanded, right? We're commanded to honor thy mother and father. Um, I think the guilt there can be tremendous, especially when there's estrangement that feels necessary in order to just cope with life and to be the best parents possible to our own children. What does that specific commandment, honor thy mother and father, look like in cases where, you know, abuse was real and it didn't feel like something we could heal from while we were in a relationship with our own parents? So a few things. You touched on a few very delicate subjects. Uh, When it comes to our parents, it's interesting. You know, it's very easy to sit here and judge with what we know today or what we think we know or what they did or didn't do, uh, how present or responsible or active they were or lack thereof. And I think, you know, when it comes to judging, whether it's a parent or anyone else, I think the easiest way to overcome that, this is not justifying their actions, their behaviors, their their good things or, or lack thereof, but the way to overcome that is, is to look in the mirror and say, we're not exactly perfect ourselves. So it's very easy to judge someone who came before us. But if we're not perfect, what gives us the right to judge? And as I remind a lot of parents, don't be so judgmental because your own children are going to be judging you one day. And just because we think, just because we think we're perfect and better and this and that, which may be the case, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, denying that. Uh, there may be a lot of truth to that. Uh, we're far from perfect and our parents were far from perfect. And I think they did in, in majority of cases, the best they can most of the time, which is what we strive for, to do the best we can most of the time. That being said, there are extreme cases where parents were abusive, where they were reckless, where they were hurtful, where they caused short-term and long-term damage, caused all kinds of mental health challenges that people have a hard time overcoming by their behavior. Not that they intentionally wanted to hurt their kids, but in reality, their actions and behavior had a tremendously negative effect on their children or child. And what it does is it's very difficult when someone who's supposed to be there to protect you, someone who's supposed to be there to love you unconditionally, someone who's supposed to be there all the time when you need that person in a safe, secure place to be, to feel at home and comfortable, was not there, that can linger for many, many years and decades, well into adulthood, and sadly, sometimes a whole life. And it's it's really tragic and terrible because a person is really to some degree hijacked by it, and they have a hard time moving forward and moving on. So I think we need to separate What's what, what I would call 
normal parental behavior, what I would think are most parents who do a decent job most of the time. We're not perfect, just like our parents weren't. And separating that from parents who truly were not present, reckless, irresponsible, abusive, call it what you want. And I think when it comes to a case like that, this is where the challenge is. We want to respect our parents. We want to love our parents. We want to honor our parents. But yet we look at their actions and behaviors, either presently or in the past, and we say, how can I honor, respect, and love such a person who did such and such and such over an extended period of time? How do we put that two together. So what's interesting is this is spoken about in Jewish mysticism and in other places. And we know this practically in our lives. And I'll be a little graphic, but then explain. We can love and hate the same person. Now, hate's a very strong word. As my wife always reminds my kids, don't use that word. There's better words to use. So, um, but to be, just to give you the example, I can love someone and hate someone. I can love them for what they did, for what they accomplished, for bringing me into the world, for uh, contributing to society, for what they overcame in their own lives, where I may have a deep respect and appreciation and gratitude for. But I can also dislike, better word than hate, or or sometimes hate may be necessary if it's really abusive, certain behaviors and actions. So in other words, it's not so much the person, but their behaviors. So uh, as, I, as I like to think of myself when I visit penitentiaries and people who've done sometimes horrific things, I try to separate the person from the actions because at the end of the day, they're a son or daughter of a mother and father, they're a brother, a sister, or a parent of a child. So while they may have done something very crazy or evil or really negative or hurtful or painful or tremendously uh, beyond words, uh, in some cases, really unfortunate things, they were weak, they had a terrible moment, or they their evil side overcame them where they couldn't control their own behavior. And I try to separate that. So when it comes to a parent who was, let's say, abusive, or what you do is you say, you know what, I hate what my parent did that part of their lives or how they acted or how they behave. But I also respect and love, you know what, they brought me into the world and they struggle with their demons or couldn't overcome them. But there's also positive things they did. What are the good things they did? Did they help neighbors? Did they sometimes give me the love and support or that I cherished and craved and needed? So I think it's not black and white. Uh, no one's perfect. No one's purely evil. There's, there's a lot of gray area and a lot of middle ground. And hopefully... Most of our lives are two steps forward and one step back. But some people, it's one step forward and two steps back most of their lives, which is a lot of negativity, a lot of negative energy, a lot of pain, a lot of trouble. And it's really, I have compassion on such people because they destroy their own lives and those around them. Because if when I start judging them, it doesn't make me happier or better or healthier. It gets me angry. And when I can step above the craziness, the negativity, and say, you know what? They were weak human beings, or they struggled, or I don't know what their parents did to them, or I don't know what a teacher did to them, or I don't know what circumstances in life they did to them. Because by the way, just like some of us can share a lot of deep inner thoughts and emotions, they have the same struggle. And by the way, they're from a generation where you just don't talk about certain things. You know, we are very good at talking about all our traumas and all our all our pains, real or, or imagined. Uh, but the prior generation sort of, it happened to them, they shut up, they marched forward. So they could have been victims of horrific abuse. And you just, and by the way, if you told that to your parent or grandparent, they would say, well, be quiet and don't tell anyone. Uh, where today, you you know, they call 911 and, and make a ruckus and, and change the world and turn the school, the environment, the institution over. And rightfully so, that, that's what should happen. So uh, 
you know, I'm a parent of uh, more than one or two children. And I like to think of myself when I see, exactly, when I have more than a handful, but when I see others doing things, uh, a handful's just five, I think. So I'm, I'm for, you know, for better or for worse, I'm more than a handful. But when I see people judging and I'm like, I, I, I acknowledge it, I listen. And then I say, okay, so what, where does that bring you? What good does that take you? Okay, so your parent was such and such. Your parent did this and that. Okay, so what, so what are you going to do about it now? So you have the choice. You can wail in anger, disappointment, frustration. Or you could say, you know what? They were either weak, they struggled, they weren't perfect. And then sometimes when you start looking at ourselves, we sometimes treat our kids or our own siblings, our own friends. And I know I'm far, far, far from perfect. If my wife were here, she would add a few more fars. Uh, and then you're, it's, it's frankly not that easy to accept or hard to accept, I should say. I, I can accept and acknowledge that, you know, I'm so far from perfect. And what's fascinating is the better person you try to become, we all strive to be better, healthier, better parents, better spouses, better children, better everything, better neighbors, better friends. I find that the more, I wish I knew this 10 and 15 and 20 years ago, because I like the version I am now much better than I was when I was younger. Uh, I mean, I'm just wider, but I'm, I'm happier as, an, as a human being because I appreciate and I'm less judgmental because I know how weak and how difficult and how my own internal demons are sometimes that when I see somebody else, I'm not disturbed by it. I'm not uh, thrown off by it. I'm not, uh, it doesn't change my life. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't get me off kilter or off balance. I understand that, you know, hey, and it's easier to accept because I appreciate that myself and so many others are not perfect. And I find the less judgmental we are and the more accepting we are, the healthier and happier and better we are as human beings. I think in these cases where perhaps the abuse from coming from our parents was severe or the relationship was really strained, um, this idea of honoring our parents can feel really burdensome because it's interpreted as have no boundaries. And what I've always heard you say is that is absolutely not what this commandment is saying at all. In some ways, honoring your parents is having those boundaries is, you know, being the adult that somewhere in their souls, your parent would have wanted you to be, you know, if they could really be all that they are. Oh, 100%. Honoring a parent is not, you know, forget everything else in the world, my own family, my own life. Honoring a parent is doing the right thing for your parent. So that means being respectful, being a mensch, calling them often, being there often, expressing love and appreciation and support. But if a parent is a burden in an unhealthy way, not because God forbid they're older and struggling and have health challenges where then yes, honoring them, it's our responsibility to help them and be there and put in a support system that can, uh, that may be necessary for them to continue uh, going on, so to speak. Of course, that's under uh, the commandment and the ideas of honoring a parent, which we all strive for. But if a parent is abusive uh, and it extends to some point or they can continuously interfere with your life and how you live and how you raise your children to the point where it becomes a negative energy, where it becomes a negative influence, a source of heartache, a source of headache, a source of problem, a source of frustration, a source of confusion. You have to set boundaries. So sadly, all of too many of us not all of us, but too many of us are very black and white. We cut them out or let them in. There's a middle ground there. Uh, cutting someone out is never healthy. Never. Uh, I, I, I never like the idea of cutting out. You may need very big boundaries and very big walls and very big fences. But cutting out is, is a 
it's it's dirty, it's nasty, and it's inappropriate, it's wrong. What message does it send to our own children and the next generation, how they interpret that? I think, and I've seen it, where the next generation says, well, my parents did it to their parents. And and it's it's heartbreaking because you see the dysfunction continuing generation to generation. So I think it's okay, not okay, but appropriate as necessary in a rational way, not out of emotion, not out of anger, to set boundaries and say, what is an appropriate response? And what is, when does it become an unhealthy response where I'm enabling or I'm I'm not fixing it, where I'm just being victimized or I'm just being abused. So there is a thin line there. And the idea is to think about what that line is, but not out of, again, negative energy. But when you're in a good, positive, healthy place, probably after a nice walk or a nice walk or a workout or a good night's sleep and say, what's the right thing to do here? And I'll share a story. What's interesting is a friend who uh, lived in the community for some time uh, approached me at one point and she was a woman older than I am and her father was a Holocaust survivor and he was a hero in the community he lived in. He's passed a long time already and he was given honors and shown great respect and in the community people would bring him to speak and always acknowledge him and he was I don't want to use the word a hero, but a a very prominent figure because of what he lived through and what he went through, no fault of his own. At the same time, which is sad and not spoken about often, many people who suffer tremendously, who are abused like that in the Holocaust, were not very good to their own family and children. And he was an abusive father. And this... Uh, this nice lady tells me, how do I reconcile that everyone who talks, meets me and sees me says, oh, wow, you're dead. And as if he's, you know, the greatest thing to ever come. And I know the monster he was, how he treated me. I didn't ask her what kind of abuse, but it sounded pretty intense, whether emotional, physical, and even more. And this is already when her father was still alive, but at the point where he wasn't functioning well, he had a few months left. I think he passed a short time after. And more than anything, she was trying to reconcile, how do I honor and respect this giant who I really know is not really a giant, but is actually quite the opposite. And I told her the same thing. I said, respect what he lived through appreciate what he lived through, have gratitude what he lived through and the type of abuses. Not that that's excuse that he was, that, that doesn't excuse his behavior toward you or his abusive behavior toward you and your family, but it may explain it. So in other words, love and respect what he lived through and despise the terrible things he did to you. And it's okay to do that to the same people. You know, we're all in relationships. Sometimes those we love very dearly, we can say with all our hearts some not nice stuff to them. Not, of course, not you, Laura, but everyone else. Not me. And, no, everyone else. Yeah. Of course. And so, and we mean it when we say it, by the way. But we know that's not really what we think of them. So in other words, we do this all the time. We, we like certain people. We may like certain teachers but not love them. We may, and I remember when I used to complain as a kid about certain people, uh, my parents used to come with the same response. That's okay. You don't have to like them. You're not marrying them, but make sure you're respectful and nice and kind. And, you know, even if they were wrong sometimes, but you know, you don't have to be their best friend, but be respectful, cordial, simple. Don't, Don't be overly respectful. Don't be overly nice, but let it move on with it, get, move forward with it. I love that you're making room for two different things happening at once here. It's an and, not a but. That you really can love somebody and hate them or have a really hard time with them at the same time. Where I feel like we are as a society right now is that there is absolutely no gray area. This is not not the first time I've talked about this on this podcast, but we live in a black and white society. We cancel people. We decide that people are wrong and terrible based off of one misdeed, one act. We from 20 years ago when they've done so much since then that's good for society. Um, and I mean, 
I've heard teenagers recently talking about how, you know, you know, my dad has Twitter and I wanted to make sure he didn't say this because I don't want him to get canceled. I mean, there's an actual fear growing of just doing this one thing incorrectly or in a, in a way that's perceived to be incorrect and losing your entire life and everything you care about because of it. And what's true is that two things can be true at once. More than two things can be true at once. And um, I know that sometimes in, in cutting somebody off, you know, you were talking about that just not being the, the path that ends up really working out very well is there's this sort of heartstring that's cut off too that the reason why it can feel so uncomfortable is because yes we need boundaries with somebody sometimes extremely extremely big ones cement ones cement walls but that doesn't mean that we don't have love for them that doesn't mean that we don't and sometimes for me that love has looked like sending somebody love like saying a prayer for them and just wishing them well like i can wish somebody well who doesn't necessarily have a regular place in my life and and that is okay. You know what? I think you just hit the nail on the head. That is so true. I think you know you're, you're living a pretty good, healthy life. When someone does something wrong, and instead of having anger, you actually feel bad for them, that that's yes. their life. Uh, it's, there's almost a sense of compassion. Like, look what they did to themselves. Even though they were hurtful or wrong to you or me, uh, that, that's when you know you're in a good, healthy place because someone doesn't have the power over you at that point. But I, going back to what you said earlier, it is so true. When we cancel people and the like, and and maybe there are cases where a person obviously should be canceled. I'm not I'm not excusing all of it, but it's to, we ho- we hurt all of ourselves. Uh, we we douse free speech. We uh, we scare people into sharing their thoughts. It's unhealthy for society. It's unhealthy for our children for education. So it probably doesn't surprise you. I'm as against canceling anyone for that matter. It it is terrible. It is wrong. It is hurtful. And nothing good comes out of it except it just scares people. Uh, And you know what? We shouldn't be intimidated and we shouldn't be scared. Now watch me go do something where people want to cancel me, but uh, which is okay. I'm a a big boy, but uh, it's, it's so true what you're saying and it hurts all of us. It does. It scares us from creating things, from sharing messages with people, from we, we, our fear of failure. It's so funny. We teach our children, like, try your best. It's okay to fail. You can get up again. And then we raise them in a society where we say, if you fail, you're totally screwed. Like you don't have a second chance. It's over. And, and we, we bring that fear upon ourselves. We make it, I mean, I I look at Will Smith, right? The slap heard around the world at the Oscars last year. You've got this man who has like this unbelievable career. Obviously, you know, he's done some questionable things in his life. I've never met him. Okay. But obviously he did something he shouldn't have done. Uh, There was no room for like this teachable moment, this sort of apology, this rebuilding, him talking about being a flawed person, because we just have to like say goodbye to him for however many years until his PR person finds a way for him to come back and star in a movie and win everybody over again. And it's just so toxic. Like in no way do I condone what he did. I think what he did was awful. I think he should play a part in in discussing that with people and talking about maybe where it came from or maybe doing some sort of public apology or conversation. I don't know. But but I remember being so afraid when that happened. Like, oh, no, I love this guy. I love his movies. I want my kids to see his movies. And like, what if what if we never makes one again because of this one horrific moment? So true. And you see it, by the way, which is even more disturbing when people are in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s and someone will come and say, well, in high school, they said something racist or sexist and therefore they should lose their job, lose their career. And I'm like, that's not a reflection of who that person is. We've all done things when we were 
16, 18, or 22 that we're frankly not very good or nice or healthy. It doesn't make us a permanent racist or sexist or misogynist or whatever it may be. We said things, we did things. It's not a reflection of who we are, but rather we said something stupid and made a mistake. Uh, but to go and have someone pay a price like that many years later, when they've dedicated their lives to bettering society, to doing positive things, good things, raising a beautiful family, being active in community, it is so hurtful and disturbing and un-American. You wrote something recently that I'm going to share here, and um, I want to ask you to tell us more about it. So just a few weeks ago, you um, shared this quote from the Talmud in one of your Shabbat emails. A person is obligated to say the entire world was created for my sake. And then you shared the following. To a child, this is obvious fact. He or she is the center and focus of it all. Father and mother and the rest of the universe exist merely to cater to his or her needs. The undesirable aspects of such an attitude are self-evident, but the egocentric instinct that the child exemplifies has a positive side as well. A child has no problem dealing with an insignificance of self in face of humanity's billions and the vastness of the universe. A child is utterly convinced that his or her existence has meaning and his or her deeds have consequence. This is the child in ourselves that we must learn to cultivate. The conviction that our every thought and deed is real, that our every thought and deed is of real, even global significance. Can we say the same of the social universe? Can a single act, word or thought on our part resound in millions of lives? Ask your child or the child in you. What does it mean that everything we do can have a global significance? And honestly, I have the same question. Like, how is that even possible with 7 billion people on this planet? I can't tell you how often I wake up each day and I have a really good idea and I get smacked in the head with, Laura, like, what difference is it going to make? You're one of so many people. Okay, great question. And we all struggle with that, by the way. Regardless of what field you're in, what you're doing, we all struggle with what is our impact? What are we accomplishing? What are we really doing here? It doesn't matter. So a few things, and uh, we could speak about this for a few weeks. Birth, first of all, uh, is God saying you matter. That's first and foremost. So, uh, so in other words, there is seven billion, seven billion other people in the world, but there is only one Laura Rose. There is only one Mendel Mintz. As people tell me, how many children do you have? And I tell them now it's seven. I say seven, but I have one of each because they are one of each. There aren't seven as in, oh, you have five of these and six of these. It's not like I have seven children or seven billion dollars. Seven billion dollars is. Yes, one is one and the same. Seven children is one of each, and that's priceless. So each one, they have the same two eyes, the same two ears, the same nose, the same mouth, two arms, two legs, like seven billion other people. But you know what? There's not one person in the world who's exactly the same like the other. Even identical twins have differences. They may not, you and I may not see it, but they have differences in, in, in their bodies, in their makeup, whatever it may be, in their DNA, whatever it may be. So each and every one of us are different because if you can do what I can do and I can do what you can do, then we're extra. Then we don't matter. Then it does not make a difference. But there is no two people the same because while it sounds fast, but in God's world, it's not fast. Every person has a purpose, has a reason, and a meaning. And I remind so many youngsters today struggle with, what am I living for? What's the point? What's the purpose? And they don't see the value in their lives. And there's so much value and importance, which is one of the tragedies why suicide rates are so high, because people don't see that they have any value or purpose. So what's the difference if I die? And there's tremendous value and tremendous purpose and tremendous meaning. And it's finding what my meaning and purpose is. If I try to find your meaning and purpose, I'm failing my own life because only you 
have your purpose role and mission. I don't. So uh, we know scientifically, COVID, by the way, is a great example of how one episode in Wuhan, China, whether it's from a lab or not, is irrelevant in the context of what we're discussing, changed the whole world. So whether it's a leak from a lab or an animal passing on, we do know that a, you know, a, a leave in Brazil can cause a storm 5,000 miles away. Uh, so scientifically, this is a fact. We know we have, what is it, billions of cells or even more. There's so much to us. And we don't necessarily appreciate how unique we are, how special we are. And really at the core is how Judaism explains it. We're a piece of infinity. You and I are forever. We're eternal. Our bodies are not eternal, but our lives are, our, our purposes, our actions are. They live past when our bodies are buried, in our children, in our lives. And you know what? You don't need to cure AIDS or cancer to have a meaning and purpose. You can change a person's life and that person's life can have generational effects on so many people. So that's how you change the world. And the old saying, you change the world by changing yourself and then your neighbor and your friend and one person at a time is so true because that's how the world has changed. You look at so many historical events that changed the world, it started with one person's actions. Uh, Going back to the email you quoted before, it's not our job to perfect the world and clean up the mess. But neither are we exempt from playing a role in making the world a better place. So in other words, everyone has a role to play. So if I get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to fix the world's problems, then don't get out of bed. But if I'm going to get up in the morning and say, I have a positive role in something important, and I'm going to do it by maybe making a phone call to someone who's down, maybe having a cup of coffee with someone who needs to chat, Uh, maybe dropping off a meal by someone who's struggling or can't get out of their house today. I made the world a better place today, and I did my part in fixing and bettering society. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I think about before I was a parent there, and I used to talk about, I used to talk to Ben about this all the time before we had children. I felt this overwhelming sense of helplessness that there were these big problems going on in the world and I didn't feel like I could make enough of a difference to to help fix them. And I remember when I had children, something clicked for me. It seems like such a small act to raise one child, but it was the biggest difference in the world I could possibly make to raise this child with as much love as I could possibly give her. And today, you know, I have three girls and I feel this sense every day that like the biggest change I am making in the world, the biggest difference I'm making in the world every day is raising them with as much love as I can give them. I find it so fascinating and I've never really thought of it that way that the suicide rate would be up because people feel insignificant and they don't feel like they matter. And I think that can be overwhelming today. And that gets me to my next point, which was actually the reason why I asked you to come on here in the beginning. And then I realized I had so much more um, to ask you. But I think it's becoming even harder to believe and even scarier in some ways, this grappling with our own significance as AI. Funny that I'm going to talk about AI with a rabbi, but I am. I think it's a very rabbinical subject. As AI has just come on the scene. And you're actually the person who told me about chat GBT because I didn't know what it was until I got one of your Shabbat emails. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people about this recently. People are scared. Um, it's like the whole world is changing and that can feel really threatening. You said, have you heard of chat GBT? A friend told me I could use it to write my ther- sermons and thoughts. Intrigued, I started Googling and I discovered that this chat GBT is the artificial intelligence taking the world by storm. 
I typed, please write my sermon for me. And it said, thank you for considering me. I have a decade of experience as a freelance writer. I'd be happy to help you. A decade of experience, I wondered. I thought you were only invented a few weeks ago. I instructed, write a sermon on the Torah porch portion. And it actually turned out a sermon that was astonishingly accurate, precise, and relevant. Incredible. I asked my daughter if she'd heard of it. And she said, yes, one of my friends said we can use it to write our essays. Then I saw this chat GBT just passed a law exam. The possibilities from here are endless. Give it a few months or years and you won't need me anymore, you said. This AI can probably learn to counsel couples, give Torah classes, officiate at weddings, everything else I do. But the truth is, as powerful as this tool is, it can never replace a human being. There's something powerful and unique about a real human with free choice and feelings. A real human can falter and recover. A real human isn't perfect. We are raw, authentic, real, feeling, growing things that ChatGBT can never become. Yes, it can help us, but it can't replace us. Hashem, which is Hebrew for God, created us as fallible and imperfect and changed us with perfecting his world and charged us with perfecting his world. If he wanted angels, he would have created us that way. Only we imperfect humans can change the world and spread the love. So let's go out today and add light to this world. So I think we're reading, we're, we're really, I mean, I, I'm not immune to this at all. I have been totally freaking out a little bit and excited. Like I'm really excited about what this can do, but also it's happening so fast. So this is this other opportunity for us to kind of perceive our own, what feels like insignificance. And so how do you, I mean, I can't imagine I'm the only person bringing this up with you. How do you help people grapple with how quickly the world is changing? Yeah. So change is scary, period. Some of us embrace it. Some of us are scared of it. No one really likes it, but it's part of life. Things change, the world changes, and it's okay. It always has, it always will. So try not to be scared. God loves us. God's there for us. We're going to be okay. And I don't know what the future is, and I do not understand. Uh, I certainly don't. And the implications and the impacts and what it's going to do to us and to our children and on, gl on a global scale, what it's going to do to the economies, what it's going to do to the job markets, what it's going to do to everything. But I'm an optimist. I know it's going to be okay because of course it's going to be okay. There's no alternative to be know, okay. You don't know, but you just it's know gonna it's going right. to be okay. But that being said, do you want to have a child who's a robot? Do you want to have a spouse <laughs> who's a robot? Do yeah. you want to have someone who's emotional is up and down? And I'll give you an example. You can have a painting of maroon bells or some other beautiful painting of a person or a scene or whatever it may be. And the painting could be worth... $500, $1,000, a million dollars, or maybe $100 million. You can take a photograph of that same painting, not the painting, but of what the painter painted, uh, the mountain, the maroon bells. And even if it's a great painting, a great photo, excuse me, it's worth a dollar, 50 cents. I mean, it's not worth anything, right? Uh, you could buy a postcard for whatever. What's the difference? Isn't the photograph much more accurate than the painter's de uh, description of whatever the painter painted. So what's the difference? And the difference is paintings are human beings. Mm -hmm. Photographs are angels or AI. In other words, photographs aren't real. Paintings are real because it has the human emotion. It has the up and down. You're not just buying... Uh, what the painter did. You're buying his emotions, his ups, his highs, his lows. And you look into it and you can imagine the emotion and the pain and the love and the warmth or whatever the painter is trying to give over. When you look at the photograph, you say, whoopee-doo, I could pull out my camera too and do something like that. So AI serves a purpose and it will serve a purpose and I don't know what it is, but there is no replacing a human being. A human being is irreplaceable. There is no 
replacing you, me, or our children or anyone else. And that will always be the case. So whatever a human creates, it's not going to create another, only a human is going to create another human being, not AI. And I know there's all kinds of stuff out there and I'm not concerned about that yet. I do think while, again, there's some concerns, I think we should embrace it because everything out there comes from God, in my opinion, uh, the Jewish opinion, the Jewish way of looking at the world. Nothing here is there to hurt us, but rather it's all there to make life better, support us and what we're trying to do, give us purpose, meaning, direction. So when we see these things that are raise all kinds of questions and concerns, more for our children than even for us, because you know they're going to have to live with this so much more as it becomes more mainstream and more present in every area of life. It's okay, we're going to see what it is. We're going to see what the benefits are, what the potential pitfalls are. How do we protect ourselves from it? How do we use the positive in it and not the negative? And I think it's something that ultimately will be good. But bottom line is, I don't want to be married to a robot or a computer or have children that way. I want humans. And AI is not human and it's not a soul. And a soul is, there is no replacing a soul and no computer, no uh, artificial intelligence can create something like that. I think it's easy to feel, and I, I know I feel this way, like the faster the world around us is going, the easier it can be to get for people to get steered off track or lost in some way. Like I actually think that there there's a ton of hope in this technology, but of course it's not only going to be used for good. I think we're going to see a lot of people who are going to use it, um, honestly, to create AI friends and romantic partners so they don't have to deal with real people. I mean, obviously that feels pretty dystopic because it's like in some ways it brings us closer to this really modern idea that we don't have to engage with anything that makes us uncomfortable. We deserve to be with someone or something that never makes us feel anything other than happiness. I know you don't want to be married to a robot and I certainly don't want to be married to a robot, but I'm kind of worried about everyone else who wants to be married to a robot. And, um, you know, this sort of this idea brings us further away from other people. And I know for me, Judaism, I can imagine it is for you. Judaism is such an anchor in my life because there's so much that uh, it, it's taught me so much about these rules for living that keep me grounded, which is so, so counter to what we're taught today, which is, you know, the rules are bad. Structure is debilitating. Freedom is the answer. Individuality is the answer. We really don't like rules anymore as a society. And they they scare us. So sometimes I feel like I have this little secret, right? I go to my Shabbat services on Saturday and I I love my I love Judaism. I love being Jewish and I have these this this outline for what I am what what's great to do in my life and what I ought not be doing in my life and it keeps me grounded and it keeps me centered while the world around me is kind of like spinning out of control. Where do we go from here? Like how do we how, first of all like <laughs> how do we get to this place where there are no rules and do you ever kind of feel like you're on an island a little bit? Yes, a couple of things. One, if people want to avoid real meaningful relationships because you could get hurt, fine. But don't complain when your life is so shallow because you can't have it both ways. You can't have meaning and purpose and avoid reality. You can't have a meaningful yeah. relationship with a non- uh, with 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 whatever, and, and I know it. A robot. There's, there's layers and layers but of that. But this also goes to what you were saying before about like cutting people off, and there's just this huge wave in our culture right now of like if it makes you uncomfortable, get rid of it. And there's no room for growth. It's so immature. It's supposed to be viewed as being mature. It's not mature at all. Correct. Correct. As, as I tell people, an example being, and I know we all have it, not me personally, but we all do a dog. A dog is great as a companion, but if you're having a dog because it doesn't answer you back and listens to what you say, you got problems. <laughs> and some people have a dog for that reason. I, and I, I'm not saying that 
<laughs> in a choking way. It's sad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's people, their dog is there, their, their spouse, their daughter, their son, their companion, their everything. And you know what? The dog would be, it would be fine, except the dog listens to everything they say. So in other words, they don't become better in a relationship. A real relationship brings out the best in you. A real relationship makes you a better person. A real deep bond with your child makes you and him or her a better person. A shallow relationship is one way. An animal relationship is one way. And I know people say, oh, I get so much love. It gives me back. Fine. I'm not, I'm not discounting any of that. But, but also, let's call it what it is. It's not a human being. It's not something that is uh, adding an element of meaning where it could replace a human or be equal to a human. It simply does not exist. So where do we go from here? You know, I think like all things, we need to look at it based on the knowledge we have today. And by the way, that could change in a week because it's changing so quickly, the world. But where am I today? What are what are the good things? What are the less good things? What are the rules that are not rules, but rules that really enhance my life? Because rules, no one wants rules. I don't want you to tell me what to do. And you certainly don't want me to tell you what to do. It's because rules are not good, but rules that are enhancements. In other words, I love that at the end of the week on Friday night, whatever the hell is going on in the world, I put everything down. And I'm just surrounded by beautiful people, beautiful food, beautiful conversation, and beautiful beverages. And I'm relaxed, I'm calm, and I'm good. And because it doesn't matter what's going on, whether it's a game, an activity, a sport, or it's something in the world. It's about my family, my loved ones, my friends, my community, my people. And it's so beautiful and so refreshing that I can actually take a break and step out of my life, so to speak, once a week for a few hours and appreciate the blessings and look at my life and say, is this the life I want? Is this the values I strive for? It's a time for reflection, really. Exactly. And in other words, so everything in life is, I'm not suggesting that we know it all or that we're perfect or we're making the right decisions. But when you're balanced and sane, you look at the plus, the minus, what's good, what's healthy, uh, and you sort of make those decisions. But we all understand balance is important. Making smart decisions are important. And if we live that way, whatever happens, we'll We'll take advantage of the opportunities presented to us. We'll try to avoid the negative, the negative energies and negative world events that may come our ways and do the best we can to live. And I think, frankly, humility is a great way around it, acknowledging and understanding, hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't need to know what's going to happen. I don't need to know everything going on in the world. I don't need to know what the New York Times said today or what... CNN or what team won or didn't win or every detail. As I like to say, sometimes it's good to say, I don't know and I don't care, uh, which is really the difference between ignorance and apathy. What's the difference? I don't know and I don't care. And I say that a lot because I don't need to know everything. And you know, I don't mean this in a callous way. I don't care about a lot what's going on. I don't mean that because I'm reckless or, or discounting someone's pain, meaning I, I, I'm okay. I'm, I, I'm, I have a small, finite mind, and I think it's getting smaller as I grow older, but it's okay. The little I do know, I appreciate. I like to learn a little every day. I want to be available. I want to be present. I want to be there for people because it makes me feel so good. Selfishly, I want to do that. We know when we help people, we feel so much better about ourselves. And I just want to do good things. And it's okay if I don't know what's going to happen. So humility is a very healthy trait. 
That is so true. I was reading this book to my daughter last night called What Do You Do With a Problem? And it was about how when you have a problem, it's the best thing you can do is to face it head on and realize that's actually not so scary. And afterward, I said, do you have any problems like that? Anything that makes you feel that way? And she said, I'm having a hard time thinking of something. Can you tell me a problem that you have? And I said, well, sometimes I get really scared when things aren't going the way I think they should go. And what ends up happening is they end up working out even better than I could have imagined. And I found that that keeps happening over and over. So I'm starting to realize that the things I think are problems actually aren't problems at all. And she said, well, then why do you worry about them in the first place? And I said, that's a very good point, sweetheart. I'm working on that. Because you're human. But that's so true. Problems problems are opportunities. That's what it really is. And it's scary because what do I do? How should I react? How do I handle it? It is scary. It's sometimes intimidating, but they're really opportunities even because our hardships make us better and stronger. They do. And I'm, I'm, thank you so much for coming on here and chatting with me today. It has been such an honor to have you on Look Ma No Hands. It's a great honor for me to be here. I appreciate and admire everything about you and what you do. Thanks for having me and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Thank you so much. If you guys want to hear more from Rabbi Mendel Mintz, he's my rabbi here in Aspen, Colorado. You can go to jccaspen.com. There are plenty of ways to support the Jewish Community Center here in Aspen, which has been such a cornerstone for our family and for so many other families. You can read some of his blog blog posts, learn more from him, sign up for the email and get those amazing Shabbat emails that I'm so lucky to read every Friday. I look forward to joining you guys again next time. (laughs) 